Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. First of all, through comedy, as I met a lot of people, um, probably well over a year ago. Um, as soon as I first met her, we had a good cha- good conversation. I said, you know, I'll get you on the podcast, and she was really excited about that. And for one reason or another, we've just never been able to line up a time. So I'm finally glad now to have her on. She's one of the most versatile, multi-talented people that I've ever met or, or known. You know, you see her doing something, you're like, wait, she can do that. She can do this as well. So she's a she's a fitness trainer by day. She's also an artist. She's a singer as well. I saw her sing for the first time at a gig last, just this week. She was fantastic. She plays the kazoo. If you don't know who I'm talking about yet, you might now, you might now know. And she's also a fellow comedian in Saigon. And uh, I absolutely always love watching her perform because you never know what she's going to say or what she's going to do. She's a storyteller and all of her stories are entertaining. So today's guest is AJ Miller, all the way from uh, Jersey in America and she has one of the best accents slash voices that you can say so welcome to the show hey Neil I am so excited to be here uh, like you said I have been wanting to do this podcast forever and I'm always like I don't know what it's about but I'm ready like whatever you got so uh, thank you 
Thank you so much. And thank you for that amazing introduction. It really feels good. And it makes me think of my parents because my parents were jacks of all trades. They were insane people. So I just feel like to see someone else see me the way I see my own parents is kind of nice. That's cool. It's the best start to a podcast ever. Well, <laughs> let me expand a little bit on the, the introduction. So you're, you're a daughter of a Vietnam slash American war veteran, right? Depending on how you want to see it. We call it the Vietnam War. Um, and you came to Vietnam exhausted and angry at the world because you'd spent three years taking care of your dad. And he had Agent Orange-induced leukemia, which is, you hear about Agent Orange, you just think of, like, Vietnamese victims. But then you go to the, the war museum here, and you're like, oh, no, this affected, like, lots and lots of, of vets as well, right? So you had his memoirs, right? And you wanted to, like, learn and experience and see what he saw and come. And so that brought you to Vietnam. Um, and I haven't seen this, but you've done live readings, right, of his uh, memoirs. So that, that I'm going to have to, are you doing that anytime soon? We'll look out for that one um, to help spread awareness of PTSD in soldiers, which is fantastic. And then you spend the last two years kind of healing, exploring, developing yourself in uh, the uniqueness that is Vietnam. And everyone who's been here or lives here knows it is um, a very unique place as well, isn't it? So um, based on that start, um, how's Vietnam? Uh, the perfect place to recover. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I was like, like you said, I was exhausted. Uh, my dad, you know, through the three years of, uh, three years of taking care of my family, like the first year and a half was helping my dad die as best I could. And then, then a year and a half of like, just trying to get, I mean, my father was amazing, but he was a horrible uh, organizer and so it was just a mess a financial mess a family mess as far as like who pays he paid all the bills my mom didn't have you know the information I had to just dig and dig and dig and get into computers I had to become a person I'd never been before organized I don't know if I was actually that organized but I mean like I had to I had to become somebody else to handle what I had to handle and then after three years of that I was just <laughs> utterly just exhausted and angry and, and kaput, if you will. And, um, you know, after, three months after my dad died, we received his memoirs from the editor. We didn't know, we didn't really know. I mean, I had heard him say, oh, I'm writing or whatever, because his PTSD was becoming apparent um, as he got into his 60s, how he was still reacting to life in a fight or flight um, reaction. He was still reacting as if every decision was life or death. So he would risk it all and either win all or lose all. And that had huge repercussions. You know, it's somebody who doesn't know how to, to risk 60%. So you still have 40% in the bank. You know what I'm saying? So like, um, it was, it was just a crazy, crazy time. And I, I got his memoirs and I tried to read them and I just cried and cried and cried. And I was like, how? how am I going to do this? And I decided I needed to leave the country anyway. I didn't know where to go. One of my best friends was like, well, <laughs> bitch, you've learned so much about Vietnam. Like, you know, one and a half hour drives to the airport, one and a half hour drives, uh, not airport, hospital. Hospital while he was in, you know, uh, stem cell transplant treatment and all this stuff. I started hearing all these crazy stories about Vietnam I'd never heard in my whole life. I'm 40 you know, at this point, 40 years old, and I'm just then learning what his position was. He was a scout pilot. He was stationed in Pleiku, um, uh, central Vietnam. 
uh, and he was scout. Scout pilot means you're a helicopter pilot who you're the hunt and kill unit, right? So you go out, you've got one person, your gunner next to you, you're the pilot, and you go out and you fly low to the ground to push the leaves out of the way and you try to find foot soldiers. And like, you know, I started learning about all this insanity and how, you know, he was killing people from 15 feet away, you know, looking people in the eyes. And one particular story that I read and that he had told me about personally was how um, he had come upon, he and his gun, gunner, Jack Rose, his nickname was Rosie. My dad's memoirs are called Rosie and Me. So if you go on my Red 1-7 uh, Facebook page, it's all my art. But you can see the, the live stream readings from my father's memoirs, and it's called Rosie and Me, and then the, the title of the chapter. So Rosie, the gunner, you know, <laughs> they'd be flying low. And this one particular time, they found, like, a group of 10, you know, all with their big backpacks, and they're trying to hide under the brush, right? And he just tells the story, and it goes into slow motion in his memory about shooting all of them while they're laying in the grass. And they're, they're curled really, really tight. And then, <laughs> this is where I cry, um, as, they, as they get shot, they relax, they, they don't do what they do in the movies. That's what my dad said. He's like, it's not like in the movies, man, where they're like, G -g -g -g, you know, jerking. They just let go. And he says, and it's like they blossom like flowers. And that, you know, that image, I couldn't read any more of it. So I decided, you know what? I need to leave this country. So I've got these memoirs. There's towns. There's names of places and there's adventures and stuff. I'm just going to. I'm just going to fucking go to Vietnam and be able to read these things. Maybe in the places they actually occurred. Maybe not. But So that's kind of how I got here. <laughs> Intense. <laughs> so have you been to many of those places then? Yeah, so to go in the funny direction, one of the stories is how my father lost his Vietnam, uh, lost his Vietnam, lost his virginity in Vung Tau. So it's an entire story about how he was given a mission to deliver a helicopter from Pleiku down to Ho Chi Minh. So he landed in, what's the Vietnamese name for our airport? Don't, yeah, that. Don't say that. <laughs> and he has this whole story about landing in Ho Chi Minh, um, and he was just supposed to pick up the helicopter and fly it back up to Pleiku. But he was a little sick of things, and he decided he was just going to go south to Vung Tau. Now, the problem at the moment was that there was uh, heavy gunfire going over the airport. So nobody was flying. He flew in, but then it was under attack. There were snipers on a building, and he couldn't get to his helicopter. So they're all laying down on the floor in the airport, and he happens to be laying down next to a South Vietnamese uh, soldier. And this guy, they, you know, they start talking right there. Overhead, right? This is the best story. <laughs> and the, the, the guy figured out that my father needed to get to his chopper. And he goes, do you want to get there now? And my dad was like, yes, please. And he goes, follow me. So, he, you know, military crawls over to like whatever, gets a Jeep to like fly across and get my dad. Never saw the guy again. Got his address. They were going to try to like communicate, but they didn't, you know. And, but my dad always remembered this guy. And he gets into the, to the Jeep. They, like, scream him across the tarmac to the hangars with all the military choppers. And he's hearing over the loudspeakers, 
do not fly. And my dad's like, my dad was a little insane. He just, he starts um, turning on the, the helicopter and like, do not fly. But he knew they wouldn't come out and stop him because there's gunfire overhead. And he was like, well, the sniper's over there and I have to go south. So I'm just going to get the fuck out of here. So he flies out, didn't get hit. He actually, he's like, I had the radios off, so I have no idea if they were trying to, trying to get me. He goes, I, I fly, it's a quick trip down to Vung Tau. And, you know, as he's approaching the Vung Tau airport, they're like, this is an unauthorized, unauthorized ship. What are you doing? And he's like, emergency landing, refuel. They're like, all right, bring him in. He lands. He's like, I'll be back tomorrow. And he goes to the beach. <laughs> and he tells the story. He's like, so it's just this beautiful place. And there was a ton of Australian soldiers and American soldiers. He goes, and I went to the Grand Hotel because that's where everybody said, you know, that's the action. Which, by the way, yes, I've found it. I've found the Grand Hotel. It's still there. It's still there. And um, and he tells a story about how he's getting shit-faced, just like, because, you know, he's in the middle of the war. He's 18 years old. He's in charge of millions of dollars worth of equipment. And, and being the psychopath that he was, he would even fly on days off. Like, he couldn't be, he couldn't stop, right? Like... Once he flipped the switch into killer mode, there was no going back. So he just went down to Vumtau and just, you know, started drinking. And, and the American and the Australian soldiers started fighting each other and, like, beating each other up in the, in the bar. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? But it calms down. And, and he's, like, flirting with this girl. And, but she doesn't speak any English. She's, but, you know, he buys her a few drinks. And then suddenly an old man walks up to him and he says, in, in, in perfect English, he says, um... You know, I, I, he doesn't remember her name. Obviously, he can't pronounce her name. And my father did not speak Vietnamese. Uh, um, so we don't know. But, you know, this young lady would like to offer your ser- her services and spend the night with you tonight. And my dad was like, okay, let's do it. And he goes, well, we have to go talk to her mother first. So they walk out into the streets, down back alleys. And I love hearing my dad describe Vietnam from 68 or 69, whenever it happened. Um, and they went to a little, you know, a little Vietnamese home. And the guy knocks on the door, and a woman comes to the door. And there's some Vietnamese back and forth. And then he's like, all right, coming in. They sit down. And through the translator, the woman is like, um, do you have a nice hotel room? And he said, yes, I do. And she said, are you a kind person? And he said, I will not, har- I will not harm your daughter. And the mom gave him a picture, like a, a portrait of his daughter, of her daughter, to have. And she gave it to him, and she's like, all right, for 60 piesta, what was it, the money, piestas, piesers, piesers, I forget how it said. It's in the it's in the damn memoir. Um, for 60, you know, dong, let's say, mm. uh, you can rent my daughter for the night. Uh, and so they went back to the hotel and, you know, my dad, he, he loves, I love how he describes how he, you know, basically uh, made a fool of himself and that she taught him a few things. And she was very frustrated because he kept his pistol underneath the pillow, you know, because he's just in that mode. And she was like, no one's going to, we're in Vung Tau, nothing's going to happen here. And he's like, right. 
And then in the middle of the night, there was a giant explosion right outside the hotel, you know, and he's naked and he runs and he describes it John Wayne style, like pulls open the shutters and is like naked with his pistol. Like, what is he going to do? A bomb just went off. Right. And he's like, and she's like, ah, Jesus, just come back. (laughs) And the next morning, you know, she sat, she made herself pretty and beautiful again. And she said, all right, thank you. And she walked out the door. And he describes how while he didn't feel guilty about his actions, he was brought up Catholic. And he was like, I just couldn't keep that picture. He's like, and, and I personally am mad. I'm like, why didn't you take that picture? I thought I was with the route you were going. Yeah, no. He, so he, I wish. Um, so he left the picture there and walked out. And that was his, you know, losing his virginity story. So I've gotten to read that out loud, you know, and I've put that on for everybody to listen to. And and just people resonate with it so much. They just, when they see them, there's another story where he... Just before you tell the next story, I have Mm -hmm. to ask, take away um, the Vietnam War, take away the PTSD, the Agent Orange. What's it like reading a story about your dad losing his virginity? Well, so my parents were a different breed. I was brought up being pert near honest as fuck with my parents. Like, so when I lost my virginity, that was open conversation. When, um, you know, I, I had a girlfriend. I thought they, I thought they knew she spent the night in my room, you know, like uh, that was so, and I knew my mom. So my mom was a stripper in Camden, New Jersey. And I, I've known that since I was 16. Right. So my mom let me know that. And at first she thought that would be a hard thing, but you know, it's just like my, my parents are such amazing humans, you know, and and amazing humans do crazy shit sometimes. And, and they brought me up that way as well. Like live, do you? So, um, not, it's not shocking for me. You just told it so matter of fact. Yeah, no, I, um, that is the least of the horrible story, that, you know, of yeah, the difficult right. stories. Yeah, yeah. That's an easy story to tell. The other stories, mm. when I tell them, I will sit here and cry like a baby. Fair you know, yeah, yeah. those are hard stories. Yeah, I'm Hearing about my dad doing things he would never mm. want to do. And that, that cost him, that cost him a piece of himself mm. for the rest of his life. Like one of the lines in his memoir is, I never came home. That, that line kills me. I'm like, what do you mean you never came home? Who raised me? You know, like, what the fuck are you talking about you never came home? And in his mind, it's like a faded front. But the, the, the war was a constant real, real tape going on, right? So that, those are hard. Those are hard to do. So growing up, what was your opinion of the Vietnam War that came through your dad? Nothing. I didn't. I knew nothing. So your opinion was just the same as what you'd learned in school? and, and My you, you opinion was created by everything outside mm. of my house. I knew nothing. I knew um, the, only, the only thing I really knew was that my mom had said on three occasions maybe that he had just utterly broken down for whatever reason, the stress of life here, bringing him back to that feeling, like, uh, the guilt. Um, but he never shared that with myself or my brother. He never, it wasn't, you know, you see, like, store, like, um, he didn't wear military stuff. He wasn't, like, we had military stuff in the attic. And, you know, we'd play with the, 
the helicopter um, helmet that you know he had with the with all, we love the walkie-talkie and the the cords. Um, he had some had some uniforms, but it wasn't like my dad was like we're going to the we're going to the national pride parade. You know, it's like he didn't really exalt in it, or it wasn't a huge part of his identity other than to say I I went I was in war. All my older cousins knew maybe a little bit more because it was fresher. He was newer in country and they were older than us. And, you know, the boys loved my dad. He was, you know, he flew planes. He flew helicopters. He'd been all over the world. So all the male cousins especially, I mean, all my cousins just thought my dad was, you know, this superhero type of guy, which was true. For us, he made us floats for the parade. He made us forts. Oh, that motherfucker never made me that for it. That bastard, I keep, I keep wishing he had. But anyway, we designed it. I remember that. Um, you know, he made us floats, uh, you know, helicopters out of wood. He, he painted cartoon. My dad was an artist as well. So he painted my brother's bedroom wall with these giant balloons and the actual town drawn on the bottom and actual pictures of the, every single kid in our town was in the, in the baskets of each balloons. That's how... That's how, in his mind, he wasn't even there. I'm like, you were the most, you know, in some ways, you were the most engaged dad. In other ways, he was very emotionally distant. So, you know, I had the best of some of it. And, and I did not have the worst. Like, I've heard stories of, of you know, more veteran dads coming back. And it's really a horrible scenario to grow up in. But if you think about my situation, my dad was a murderer and my mom was a stripper. And I think I had one of the most amazing upbringings known to man. I think it makes me genetically disposed to handle anything. It's a source of my superhero powers, if you will. You know, it's just that and Agent Orange. I believe that Agent Orange has turned me into a superhero. Sort of like the radioactive spider kind of idea. So I heard you say that on stage the other day. You called your dad a murderer which is a difficult one for me to say as a Scottish person because there are too many R's. Too many R's in it. It's like my kryptonite. I'll say this normally, murderer. But I have to say with a bit of an American accent to make it murderer. Right? Totally different. Anyway, I don't mean to make light of it, but it's a difficult one to say. But you called him a murderer. Mm. And uh, you've just called him it again. So did you get that phrase from his memoirs or are you assigning that to him? So his memoirs is, are the first time he actually admits to himself that he's a killer. He says a killer, um, but that's, I think that's confusing when I say a killer. Because I've never heard, I don't know everything obviously, but I've never heard someone in that context be called a murderer. Right. I mean, sometimes you call, hear politicians being called out because they send them to war, right? Because they're just following orders and so So that, that was kind of like, to me, is a bit like, oh, okay, it's an interesting turn of phrase. So that's me honoring how he felt, not judging what soldiers do. You didn't uh, feel the innocence of it, like I'm following all those. Because a murderer is like pre to me sounds like premeditated, right? I should probably say I should probably say killer, because that's his words. Okay. And I think sometimes I use well, I'm a comedian, right? And uh, I tell stories. And I always have, and I do use language a little bit liberally to get people where I want them to be about something, right? So um, he himself in the memoir is like, 
I'm going to say this for the first time. Me and Rosie were killers. Um, I think for me, it's just like a, a liberal use of killer to go to murderer. Um, it sounds more like, like I said, more intentional. More intent, I was going to say, yeah, more well, like more evil, it sounds like, right? Well, that's because a killer, it's almost like a bit, yep, you know, yeah. You know Wait, so when you said when I say killer, what does that do? Is well, that the same or I think it's different. Okay. Because you it's almost more like you're a, a mercenary. Well that yes. Which you are, you're a mercenary of the, the United States government. Whereas a murderer is someone who like goes out with the intent to, to mm. murder, to kill. So uh, that just yeah, because I heard you say it the other night and then you just said it again. Like sure. who is that his words or are you saying that? Good question. And it's his words are killer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe part of me likes to say that my parents were, one was a stripper and the other one was a murderer. That's sure. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's all right. And um, the thing is, is killer is a little, people will be like, what? You know, like, what does that mean? But murder just is kind of like, goes all the way. But you're right. I should probably back down to, back down to killer. <laughs> do you, do you? I'm just, uh, I just wanted to clarify. Um, and so, so you learned that kind of phrase, reading his memoirs, and before that, that was never a like topic of conversation. Was never a topic of conversation. I did know it. So when I was eighteen, went to a big party with all of his old military buddies. It was the first time I met any of his military buddies, um, and so the memoirs is not the first time we've talked. I heard about it. We never talked about it. Um, I knew because my mom said he had breakdowns and killed people, right? So I knew that my dad had killed people, but I didn't know anything about it and it wasn't part of my story. You know, it wasn't part of my understanding of my dad whatsoever. But then we went to a big party when I was 18 years old. My mom my dad, they rented a cool little, you know, camper van and my brother and I and my cousin drove up and met all these military people for the first time. And this dude comes up to me, slight of build, um, littler than me. And I say that just because he's this soldier, you know, and like, um, and he goes, he goes, uh, you mind taking a walk with me? And I was like, you know, out into the woods, you know? And I'm like, uh, okay. And he's like, I just, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your dad. And I'm like, sure, let's go. So we go on this walk and he goes, uh, did your dad beat you as a child? And I was like, um, no, no, he did not. Did he abuse you mentally, physically abuse you and your, or, and, or your brother or your mom? And I was like, absolutely not. And I admitted that, you know, up until the point I was 11, he was very distant. And then he like came back into my life and there was a little, that was a struggle for us. But I was like, no, <laughs> like if anything, like, this guy is the bigger, biggest supporter of the underdog being like, you know, female empowerment and, and, you know, pride and letting me know that he was proud of me and all this stuff. And he was like, really? And I'm like, what are, you, what are you getting at here, bro? And he goes, uh, oh, this is where I get the murderer. Good question. Wow, I never realized this. He's the one who said to me, your dad is a murderer. And I was like, excuse me? He goes, your dad's crazy. Like, and, and I'm, you know, we're walking in the woods. I'm like, what are you talking about? 
And he goes, we had a couple cartoonists in the troop, in, you know, Troop A, um, Air Cav 717th Troop A, blah, 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 blah. My, one was my father. And the other one, he goes, the other one drew your, he would drive, draw a picture, draw everyone in the troop, right? But he drew a picture of your father that is emblazoned in my memories. He goes, it's a picture of the chopper, cartoon version of a chopper. And it's your dad hanging out shirtless from the chest down with blood and guts and intestines being dripping from his mouth and wild, crazy eyes and guns in his hand. And he's like, because he was, he had flipped the switch. He goes, we didn't think he would make it stateside. Now, this is before they had heard about PTSD. This is before anybody was worried about the psychology of the soldier years to come. The guys in the troop were like, your dad's not going to fucking make it stateside. This is not going to happen. So that's where I get the term murderer. Finally, I've been wondering why I always say that. I'm like, what is that? But it, it's that. And then uh, I said, no, man, he, uh, he's a lovely father. Maybe a little emotionally distant sometimes, but he's a lovely father, and I'm really pleased like with our relationship. It's amazing. Um, and so... Well, how did you feel hearing that? I'm a little fucked up. I, I was really proud of my dad that if he does something, he does it really well, no matter what. And that, that holds true. Like, he just... Because anytime you learn something about your parents, because parents are an enigma, right? We don't really know them. You know them as one thing, and it's your parent. You don't know them as a person. Right, right. At all. And uh, I think it's only when you get older you start to realize that they are a person. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're a complex character just like me. And uh, for any time that you're going to hear something that doesn't fit with your worldview of your parent, it's going to be jarring. But to hear that is, is extreme. So what was your first kind of like, how did you react to that when he said this? I, I don't know. It was easy. I, I, it wasn't that surprising. It made sense because you were like, well, he's extreme in what he does. So I would imagine he's extreme in, and I don't mean extreme, but I mean you said he's dedicated. Yeah, he just, uh, I've never really thought about how I reacted. Um, I just logged it. I logged it and walked back and had a great time. And then in 2011, I get a call from my mom that's like, your dad's going to psychiatric help with the VA. And I was like, what? Why? He's fine. Like, he's always seemed so level, you know, not crazy at all. Except for that he's crazy about everything he does. But, you know, like, cool crazy. Everybody loved him. You know, Mr. Good Time, you know, played guitar. With, you know, we'd always play in bands. Like, I was like, what, what's wrong? And she's like, well, your dad suffers from PTSD. And that's the first time I had heard that term, really, even, with any knowledge. And, uh, and she goes, we're trying to get it, get him uh, qualified for 100% disability. Because that means a lot of things in the U.S. If you qualify for 100% disability, it means that your life after the war has been so affected that you can't really properly do things, you know? <laughs> um, and for my dad, it was decision making, financial decision making. It was like this crazy roller coaster for us. We'd be, you know, wealthy one day and, and dirt poor the next. So I was like, so what's up? She's like, well, 
they're asking for stories about, or no, really? No, 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 no. They weren't asking anything. They, my mom was just saying, we're trying to prove that Pub is crazy enough, like for this 100% disability. And I was like, well, I, I think I have a story that could help. And she's like, what are you talking about? I go, well, back when we went to this party and I told her this story. And she was like, what? One, why would he do that? Why would somebody do that to someone's daughter, right? And I go, well, I think he thought maybe I was a beaten person. I think he thought he was concerned for Papa's kids. And then um, she asked me to write it all down. So I wrote it. It's actually, my dad included it in the memoirs, that letter. Um, it enraged my father that one of his own, and I didn't know who the guy was. I never got his name. I didn't, it was like a ghost. And he's like, who was this person? I was like, I don't know. He was at the party. It was like four day party, crazy, you know, veggie stock, we called it. It's up in Vermont. Anyway, um, essentially I wrote the story out and they, they gave it to the psychologist and that was part of what helped get him hundred percent disability status, which later allowed us to buy a house for my mom tax free because that's a benefit of one of hundred percent disability. So I'm assuming from what you're seeing that your dad felt remorse for this. And then how, how, like, how did he explain that? Uh, so I didn't hear about it, but I mean, except for through mom, through, through mom, mom, through my life. And then when, when we were going to the hospital every day, that's when he started opening up to me about the need to go back. So he wanted to come to Vietnam and he wanted us, whoever in the family could come, he asked us to come with him. Um, and I obviously was like, absolutely, you know, and he goes, and I just remember him saying, he goes, I just need to see that it's green. I need to see that there are children laughing. I need to see that families have food. So, yeah, remorse. <laughs> what I was thinking, so you've done live readings, right? Um, so playing devil's advocate here, right? So you're doing live readings or publishing stuff online about being the daughter of someone who's killed many Vietnamese people and you live in Vietnam. How has that been a challenge? Or, I mean, have you been confronted by that? Because when you say it like black and white like that, it sounds really terrible. I obviously know you and that from through this conversation, there's so much more context to it. But, you know, sometimes you can just boil things down to very black and white and it sounds really bad. And if anyone could see you, it is nodding profusely right now. So what's been the, the result of that? Um, amazing things. Everything you wouldn't expect. Complete understanding, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, even. Uh, amazing story. I was driving, so I was, I started in Hanoi, did a month and a half there of volunteer teaching, went halfway to Da Nang. There's a little town, Khao Zat, in the middle of nowhere. Spent about another month and a half or two months there uh, volunteer teaching. You know, riding around on my shitty Honda Win, I go into this coffee shop. And by the way, at that point in time, I was wearing my father's dog tags around my neck in northern Vietnam, which I got a lot of backlash from Americans for doing. So they'd see that I was wearing my dad, you know, in all my pictures, you can see that I'm wearing my dad's dog tag. My brother has the other one. There's always two. My brother has one and I have the other. Um... And I was getting backlash from Americans. How dare you wear your father's dog tags in North Vietnam? You know? And I was like, 
I don't speak Vietnamese. How else are they going to know that I'm what I am? And it was such a beautiful way to open a conversation because people would be like, is that a dog tag? I mean, they would just point at it and be like, can I see it? And most of the time, all they wanted to do was see it. They would just look at it. I would use Google Translate to be like, so that's his last name, his first name, that's his religion, that's his social security number, that's his blood type, you know? And, you know, like he was a soldier here and da-da-da. And they were all just like interested, happy to hear the story that I was here because they're big about family, that I would be here because of that was important to them. And then like um, just curious, you know, just basically curious. It was only Americans who had a problem with it. So I go into this coffee shop and there's an old man in there and the whole, his family, you know, down to the little babies running around. And they ask me what I'm doing. I'm like, volunteer teaching. And they're like, why are you here? And I was like, my dad, da, da, da. I'm like, my dad was a helicopter pilot, stationed in play coup. Um, and here's his dog tag. And the old man has a pith helmet on with the Vietnamese flag on it, right? And he's looking at me. But I mean, for real, looking at me, right? And he's like, can I see it? You know, I give him the dog tag. And he stares at it and stares at it. And the kids are playing and the... We're having conversation, just like trying to understand each other, and it's cute. And I come back to the old man, and he points to his pith helmet, and he's like, you know, I'm sure he, I don't remember what he said, but uh, I'm a soldier, right? I was a soldier as well. And I was like, what year? And he's like, 72. And I was like, 69, 68, 69. And he goes, uh... And he stops and he, he looks me right in the eyes and he reaches out to shake my hand. But he's not looking at me. He's looking clean through me. Like, he couldn't even see me. He was looking, it felt like he was looking straight into my dad's eyes and shaking my dad's hand. And I just got to be the conduit for whatever communication he had with himself, with my dad, whatever it was. And, um, and it was the most, like, if you ever feel all of your cells, almost like a sci-fi movie where someone turns into mist, I felt like I turned into mist in those moments. And then he refocused. He, he brought it back, and his eyes just went zzzzm. And they came back to my eyes, right? And then he was level with me, and then he was shaking my hand. And he smiled, and he Google translated, you are a good daughter. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming. So it's been amazing. Like, it's been beautiful over and over and over again. But that was, that was particularly, particularly powerful, for sure. Mm. I think as you, from stories I've heard from people, you get surprised like that, right? It's... um. I've seen it posted on social media, you know, quite often. Like, what's it like over there for Americans? You get, like, abused, you get shouted at in the street. Like, people who live in the States and haven't been here, maybe thinking about coming here, posting an expat group, like, what's it like being an American? And you'll read nothing as extreme as that, but most of the comments are like, you're welcome with open arms here. Like, it's, uh, Vietnamese people are awesome, as we know. So um, I'm not surprised at that story, but that, that's particularly touching. 
Um, so how has that then influenced your life since your dad passed away and finding out all this about him? Has that changed you? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what, was, what was pre-AJ and post-AJ? Like, what's the Ignorant. Difference? Ignorant. Uh, not under, you know, I don't know, just just ignorant. Just you don't know. It, it's not even like a, it's not even a, it's not a negative or a positive thing. Americans literally have a chapter in high school that say there was this war called the Vietnam War. It was highly unpopular. Which it wasn't for a long time. It was not an unpopular war for a long time. Right. <laughs> we remember all the protests and we remember like the the angst against it, but if you look at the polls and things like that, it was a very popular war for a long time. Yeah, no, it's um, disturbing. You know, the more, the and what's so amazing, I get here, and of course that, and I haven't watched it yet because I'm an asshole, but the Netflix, no, not Netflix, the... The, the Ken Burns one. Yeah, the, on Netflix, on Netflix, yeah, Netflix, the Ken Burns. Um, I watched the first one, and honestly, it was just a little too much for me to handle at that moment. I was still very exhausted, and I was very angry at the VA system in the U.S. I was angry at the way my family had been treated. I was exceptionally angry about the way my father had been treated. I was, like, torn to shreds about how many people do not have an advocate to help them through this, other than like state advocates who are not paid, they're volunteer positions or minimally paid positions, well overworked. These advocates can't, don't even have what it takes to really truly advocate for these veterans. And most of them are dealing with debilitating mental situations where they can't handle the paperwork or the, or the, the finances or the, or the getting to the right place. They just, they've been beaten to fuck too long and like my family was lucky in me in that I have a very small footprint in my you know I was living in Colorado I was a stoner I was a snowboarder and I was a fitness instructor I didn't even have a plant you know to take care of so when my dad I get the call he's got leukemia I go straight home and I start taking care of you know, my brother has a full family my mom is dealing with the fact that she's the wife of this situation like all these veterans who are struggling with cancer, with treatments, with all these things, they don't have a daughter who can drop everything and read all the fine print and make sure all the medications aren't counterindicated because the VA fucked up giving them too many, like the, you know, two different medications that actually war with each other and cause more problems than they solve. Like, that's a real thing. And I, my rage was too huge for me to watch some... Documentary. I'll, I'll get to it, though. <laughs> so how did you know it was uh, related to Agent Orange? So it's a... The, his, um, his leukemia has been proven to be... Uh, okay, so th there's a lot of technical verbiage they use to loophole things, right? The deal is there has to be at least 50% chance that... And they have to have documented exposure to Agent Orange. So my father had documented exposure to Agent Orange in his record, right? And when he came down with leukemia, it turns out that there's a lot of men, soldiers, uh, who ended up getting this particular form of leukemia. And there's research from multiple different places showing that the benzene compounds that carry the Agent Orange, not the Agent Orange itself, but the benzene 
uh, rings in it are what sticks inside the bone marrow and causes this blood this bloodborne disease cancer. So, but because it's such an expensive disease, they don't put it on the list of accepted coverage. So you have to fight for it. You have to approve it. So you have to prove it again and again. So there's multiple cases of soldiers proving that they, with this Agent Orange exposure, they got this leukemia. But you have to do it fresh every time. So I ended up, that, you know, the, the second half, the one and a half years after he died was, was me fighting for my mother's rights to get. Um, they were saying she doesn't qualify for the spousal benefits because he didn't get into the VA system hospital soon enough. And of course he died before the, kick, the benefits kick in. So I had to prove that his leukemia was based on wartime, wartime exposure to Agent Orange in order to get my mother her spousal benefits. And it, it about broke me. Actually, we, we got the news that we won the case while I was here in Vietnam and it changed my life. I just, I now know that my mom is getting that amount of money every month due to this situation. So but they have to know. That's good. Yeah. So how's life here in Vietnam then? So you, uh, how long have you been here? Two and a half years. How long did you plan to come for? No plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, mom, I might be back in two yeah, weeks. Yeah, how long do you plan to stay? No plan. No plan either? No. So two and a half years to, um, been asking this of everyone recently, how's your Vietnamese? Pretty good. Is it? Yeah, yeah I. Yeah, I love I'm admittedly it. Terrible. I love it. Now, can I have a conversation? No, but I can joke around. I can obviously get uh, you know get. I can explain in Vietnamese that my father was a soldier in Vietnam in 1969 in Pleiku. Oh, that was a helicopter pilot as well. So you know, I learn. I've learned key sentences to help me. We have Vietnamese listeners, so let's test your Vietnamese. Oh boy, oh boy. Oh, say it in oh okay, okay, okay. Bakatoi le phi cong chuk tang pleiku nam sao mai tin. What did you say there? I said, my father was a helicopter pilot in pleiku in uh, 1969. So if anyone's listening, can you can comment on Facebook? I'm sure it's not perfect. <laughs> I should be making fun of you. Batoi, batoi le chok ti kong chok tang e play ku nam samujin. I think. I'll let you know what the feedback. Is. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so how have you found living in Vietnam then and Saigon as well? Yeah, uh, I'm not much of a city person, so I you know I ended up in a city a because that's where. Right. Someone I was talking to recently from Colorado, they're like, I'm not a city person. This is, a, they were overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Um, but that's where, here's where I can make money um, as a fitness instructor, especially in Taurin, right? Like, um, and I came and I started working with Girls With Guns, which is uh, amazing for me. It was my kind of fitness. Um, and I got to meet a ton of people that way. And I was financially stable. I didn't have to like, you know, aha, freak out about money or worry about like, oh, my savings are going to run out, so I'm not going to be able to, you know, stay. Um, now that's technically happened. I shouldn't still be here. <laughs> my savings did run out. Um, and, you know, the uh, corona definitely decimated my business. 
um, and the business of Girls With Guns. So Girls With Guns now isn't running because we're still not up to a, a, a situation where we can, you know, rent the field and we don't have the numbers needed. And, and so I've kind of branched off of that and I'm just doing my own thing. Um, and so what's awesome about being here, though, What's awesome about being here is not only was, you know, did I find a good job that I can exist. I also found venues to develop my art. I've always wanted to take art more seriously. I've always, you know, thought maybe I could make money doing art, but I never took the jump. I never took the leap. I never put it out there like that. I would just do art and be like, mm, you like it? You know, um, I started tattooing. Like I, my girlfriend that I had right before I came here, um, she was a tattoo artist. She's a hand poke tattoo artist. She taught me how to do mine. This is my first tattoo on my ankle. And, um, and it's got a story and I did that. And then I came here and, and I brought the tattoo stuff with me. And my friends that I met along the way just let me like experiment on them and do tattoos on them. Um, so that's a different kind of art. It's scary art, you know, it's like, uh, and then another friend here, she was a client. We had um, a girl, you know, after Corona, her husband lost the job, a woman, they needed to move back to Scotland. And there had been an artist that does these types of drawings that are excellent going away gifts. So um, my friend, yeah, she was like, I want you to do these drawings with the vehicle, all with the stuff stacked up. And I just, I did this picture and she put it online and people, now I've got more more interest in it than I know what to do with, and I make good money doing it, right? So that's a whole, like, that's me coming out of Corona, still as a fitness instructor, but scaled back to the point where I needed to do something else, which forced my hand on art. I've started doing wall murals. I've started doing, you know, just like tattoos for people, these 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 drawings, and uh, it's it's really changed my life as far as I've been able to develop. Oh, and the stand-up comedy was the first one. Like I get up and I start doing stand-up comedy. This is something my father, by the way, had been telling me to do my whole life. And I never had the fucking clitoris big enough to get up on stage. So there I am, you know, I do my first two minutes and Angie's like, bitch, you're gonna become a comedian. I need you in two weeks, you know, to do a show. And I do, she gives me a 15 minute slot. I lose my mind thinking there's no fucking way I'm gonna be able to do a 15 minute slot of comedy. I'm not that good. Blah, 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 blah. And I get up and do 30 minutes without blinking an eye, right? Well, that sounds like the AJ. Yeah. <laughs> AJ does, uh, performs at my shows. And uh, there was one recently where I was waving the light at her like repeatedly. And I swear you were looking at me, but you just kept going and going and going. And I think eventually, like, do you want me to do 15 and like 22? You were eventually like, oh, am I meant to finish? I was like, yeah, like seven minutes ago. <laughs> And you uh, took the hint and got up. When you were about to start, like, another, another chapter story. of this story, I was like, oh, my goodness. So, you know, I'm not surprised that you did 30 minutes. Uh, it's not shocking at all. <laughs> so tell people, because you've got a, a Facebook page called Red... Red17. Red17. Yep. So tell us about that, because yeah. I know there's meaning behind the name mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, Red17 was my father's call sign. So you have a... He was the team leader, okay? <laughs> he was one of the ones that survived the longest, and... Like we said, he was a little cuckoo. So he ended up being team leader. So Red 17 was team leader's number. And then his gunner is uh, Red 170, right? That's Oscar, which is the his gunner. And I don't know, my whole being here, like my journey here started the first time my father put his, put his foot on the Vietnamese soil, 
in 68, right? So everything I'm doing here is out of that story. It's not, it's not my story. It's our story. So anything I do here as well, I get to just put that under that red one seven nomenclature just as a honor to my dad and honor to all soldiers, Vietnam War vets, whatever. Um, and so, uh, I need to get about a bit cleaner about advertising my art and stuff, but pretty much it's just, if I have art, I put it on there and whether it's the music shows, whether it's, you know, a mural, whether it's tattoos, whether it's the live readings, the live readings are all there. So if you remember right at the beginning, everyone, uh, I said that AJ was one of the most versatile and multi-talented people. That one sentence there, did you hear how many things that she just listed off? So I saw you perform music for the first time this week, which I was really excited to see because I've been wanting to come for ages and nearly just didn't make it happen. So you play the kazoo, which I was excited about because that's like a cool instrument, and then it was really, really fun. If you get a chance, go see a Saigon band. They play often at Lou Bar and on Fan Viet Chan. And where else do you play? Uh, Drift Bar. Mm. So, so far, we've played a few places, but definitely Lou Bar is, uh, is our standard. Mm. It's always a blast. It's God, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's always like that. We show up and like people come out of the woodwork and like, and I think part of it is the fact that we let people choose the oh, song. I was going to say that, that's what I love. So they, they hand round like a, a song list, I guess, of all the songs, you know, like just handwritten that they've scribbled. Like, yeah, we know this, we know this. And then you just choose it. And then I got in trouble from Adri because I was like just yelling out songs. I got so excited. I'm like, play this, play this. Like, I was trying to get personal requests by the end and stuff like that. I got a bit excited because there's a load of good songs that I like as well. Um, but no, that was really cool. You're a great singer. And uh, how Thanks. did you pick up the kazoo? Uh, <laughs> Is it an instrument? It's a kid's toy. Yeah. It's a kid's toy. Um, I have one here. If you want me to give them a little sample of a kazoo, we can make that happen. No, yeah, definitely want that to happen. So can you give us a, a bit of the kazoo? Absolutely. Uh, just as a verbal explanation, the kazoo is a plastic or metal tube with a, a little um, a hole at the top with a piece of wax paper over the hole, and it runs through like a flute, but the wax paper vibrates uh, when you hum. So here you go. A new fan biscuit was sitting on the couch there. You may have heard her snoring as she often does, and she has just jumped right up to see what the hell is going on. So you got a new fan. Now that's awesome. So <coughs> painter, painter, live recording, kazoo singer, uh, fitness trainer, and comedian as well. It's quite a resume. <laughs> it is quite a resume. I know. So how do you describe what you do to people when they ask? Uh, <clears throat> how do I usually, so usually there's a, there's, there's a, a entry point. I don't necessarily sit there and go on and on and on about all the different things. You don't get I your do. resume out. I don't get my resume out. Absolutely not. There's only, there's always an entry point. You know, they might see my tattoo. So I'll start there. Or like I'll be telling stories with some friends, and there'll be a new person there, and I'll, you know, and all the stories just, uh, you know, I just attract crazy. So, 
So they'll jump in wherever that story happens to be. A lot of it, sometimes I'm telling stories, a lot of it has to do with, you know, I talk about PTSD with, about, you know, soldiers, but I also talk a lot about PTSD with, um, like, uh, rape or uh, female um, situations, right? Like, like the story I told the other night at um, The Strange. You know, I'll tell those stories, but I'm laughing about them. I actually want to do a comedy hour or whatever where the, all of the um, comedians are talk about and, and do it in a humorous way about sexual assault, assault stories. Because I know I can. I find a lot of the sexual assault situations I've been in to be pretty humorous. But a lot of it has to do with because I've always come out on top, right? Like, so it's attempted. So I don't know... I don't know where that can go, but uh, what I've noticed is when I talk about that stuff, it's a big, it's, a lot of people don't talk about it. And what I've found is people come out of the woodwork when they realize I'm okay with talking about any of this stuff. It, people want to talk about it. They just don't feel like there's a audience for it. I need to develop that idea. But back to your question. Um, so it's whatever entry point people happen into and what happens is you know eventually they'll hear a story about oh what do you mean you sing also wait a minute I'm gonna get I didn't know that about you or you know I only knew you through fitness you you paint you know it's just like a it's like a it's a pinball I think I've definitely had that experience I thought that was kind of how I introduced you it was like I see something on Facebook or and it's like wait she does that the tattooing was one of what <laughs> so yeah um, well, look, let's finish up then. We'll finish up because we've got so much we can talk about. And uh, I've said this before, and I always think the sign of a really good podcast interview, podcast episode, is when you want to talk about more. And I've found that with nearly everyone. I can't think of anyone where I've been bored, but nearly everyone I've spoke to, we've got to about the hour mark, and I'm like, we're going to have to wrap it up. But there's so much I would love to talk about. I'm sure people would love to hear, but we'll, we'll wrap it up here. So I hope everyone has enjoyed this. So the, the final questions, the first one is, uh, obviously we know there's more than 7 million bikes in Saigon. And traffic laws here are more of a guideline than a, than a rule. So what's an unwritten road rule that you couldn't live without? Going down the wrong way on a one-way street. I, I mean, basically going wherever the hell you want, just make it happen. Uh, I, what I love about driving here is I call it faith-based driving. So faith-based driving means you just have to have faith that everyone behind you has your back and everyone in front of you has faith in you that you have theirs. It's a good description. Yeah, me and Devin talked about this in the last episode. Pretty. It's like long. schools of fish. That's what I say. I always think of it as like running water. Mm -hmm. You just have to go with the flow, right? Mm -hmm. If you follow the flow... You'll be okay. That and you can, in Ho Chi Minh, not outside of Ho Chi Minh, you can go on the light four seconds before it actually turns green. <laughs> I don't know what you're meant to do. I thought, that's, the, that's the unwritten rule. Yeah. Go four seconds yeah, before yeah. it turns green. I don't even know if it's unwritten. I think that's the written rule. That's, oh, you might pass the driving test with that one. Yeah. I think you may have answered this question, but maybe can you give a different answer? What's your most useful Vietnamese phrase? Do I say where lie? I'll be right back. Because, yeah. you know, oftentimes you need to do something or you go to a store and it's going to take more time. And instead of being like, I'm going to go to my, I need to, blah, blah, I just, say and they just, they're like, oh, okay. There's, you don't need to explain yourself. I just say hi. 
Hi, Fu. Yep, I know, exactly. Hi, Fu. I like to say well, I, which implies that I'm actually leaving yeah, and right, coming back. Yeah. I, I, when I say hi, Fu, I should probably say Nam Fu or Mui Fu. Because have you, have you noticed uh, when I first came to Vietnam, if, if a shop assistant asks you to wait for something, and it's closed door or whatever, they'd be like, okay, can you just wait for me 10 minutes? And you're like, 10 minutes? It's like so long. But they'll come back in like one. Yeah. I think it's just like they've learned that phrase. Yep. Whereas we say like, yeah, two minutes, which can mean anything from like 30 seconds to five minutes. You kind of understand it. Mm. They'll say, oh, can you wait for me? I've had people say, like, can you wait for me 15 minutes? And you're like, 15 minutes? But they'll come back like in 30 seconds. <laughs> the longer you're here, it's these things that you learn. Like if someone says, wait 10 minutes, it doesn't actually mean 10 minutes, right? My other favorite line though is, come you. <laughs> Oh, that, I mean, I, How you? I, my friend taught me that one, and that's changed my life, just being able to tell people I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. Just in a nice, concise way. The problem is, they most of the time don't understand that you're saying, I don't, I don't understand. understand. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so hard, we talk about this every episode, let's move on. What's your favorite sunset spot in Saigon? Uh, the rooftop of my first house that I, it was a house share with seven people. I'm still intimate friends with every, like, okay, that was weird, intimate <laughs> friends. You know, I fuck everyone in the house. No, I, I still hang out there a lot, and the, the rooftop basically looks straight at the um, Landmark 81, and the sun and the, 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 the sky is just amazing. So, private home. Some beautiful sunsets, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I like most about Southeast Asia in general. I remember first getting in Bangkok, and it's just these dark, red sunsets. All that pollution, baby. Gives well, us brilliant sunsets. Yeah, on a clear day, it's nice. Um, so would you rather live in Saigon now or 20 years ago? Yes. That was an odd question. Both. If I could... You have to choose one. Come on, like, man. answer can be yes like, to an or question. Sure it can. That's a, that is a thing. Um, meaning, like... You have to choose I can, one. I, Saigon now or the Western restaurants, mod cons, air con... Or 20 years ago, sleepier, quieter, less pollution, but no international food, no craft beer, obviously. Well, I would we love that. I would love anyway. to, okay I would well, love to do. You can tell where my thoughts go. I would but love that the, the old, to be here. You check the, take the old one. I would, uh, I love quiet. Mm. Uh, contrary to popular opinion. <laughs> you don't practice what you preach. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a disease, you know? Um... Yeah, no, I love. I loved living in the country up in North Vietnam. I thought that was that life that I lived up there was amazing. I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was like twenty years ago. And final question: What's missing from Saigon? Nothing. Nothing. What's missing from my life is snow, and my niece and nephew. Well, there's no snow in Saigon, so the answer is snow. No, but there's nothing missing in Saigon. <laughs> snow wouldn't be. You can't have Saigon and have snow. There's no, there's nothing missing. Meaning like it's it's the absolute perfect cooking pot for for whatever it's missing in my heart is why I need to be here, right? Like it, it is exactly the perfect place to do and be exactly what I'm doing and being right now. And what I'm missing is exactly part of the equation of what I need to be missing, you know. So there's nothing missing. I just want to go to China or Russia and snowboard yeah. for a few weeks and then come back <laughs> does it not blow your mind that um there be a lot of people that live here that have never seen snow 
Oh yeah, that's no, my it's mood, wild. Right? It's wild. You know the texture of it, the feeling of it, the fun of it. When like, I was teaching um, English, volunteer teaching English, that was the most compelling lesson I had. I did a mountain lesson, you know, where I was talking about skiing and snowboarding and you know, because that's what I love, you know, this is what I'm into. So I was talking about teaching them how to figure out if, you know, they were goofy or regular snowboarders, you know, and then I was teaching them about snow. And um, it was really wild to talk to a bunch of kids who were just like, what is it like, you know, and I couldn't really explain it real well. What they need to have here is one of those fake, like, ski slopes. We have it in Glasgow. We have it here. We ha- at Dynam Adventure Park. Fake snow. Yeah, you oh, go inside know. a building, they give you a big parka and what? big boots, and you know, you're in your shorts, so it's mm, fucking yeah. cold, right? And you run up the stairs on the side, and they give you these. And so I snowboarded down on the tube, and oh, yeah, no, it was, like it was awesome. Well, so. Tell uh, our listeners, where can they see you? Where can they read about you? We kind of touched on it, but sum it all up. If they want to see more of AJ, what's happening right now? What have you got to promote? What are you doing? You know, so, I, we've got, this is probably going to take another 15 minutes to listen to this, so keep it as concise as possible. <laughs> Basically, uh, the art stuff is Red17, that art page, and you can always uh, We'll put that in the notes of the show as well, so you'll yeah. be able to find that there. Uh, Red17, it's one word, so R-E-D, the number one. And the number seven. Um, again, that's my dad's call sign, so you can find me there. AJ Miller, just my regular site. And then A Saigon Band. We post regularly uh, that w- where we'll be playing, and we usually play at Lou Bar and Drift Bar right now. Those are our two favorite places. So if you're ever in Lou Bar or Drift Bar and you can ask, they'll tell you when we're playing next. Um, yeah, look us up at Red17 and A Saigon Band, and that's pretty much my main interface. Awesome. And I have one final question for you. Everyone wants to know this answer. I've never asked you this question. I don't know the answer. What does AJ stand for? <laughs> Amelia Jubilee. No, that's what I used to say. I used to lie because I didn't want people to use my name. Uh, my name is Amy Joe. Okay. Amy Joe Miller, the three most common names in the English language laced together in a unique soiree of glory that I distill down to AJ. Probably a good idea. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, AJ. It's thank been you. a wonderful chat. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. And um, I hope everyone enjoyed that. So have a, an amazing weekend. And I will be seeing you, I'm sure, very, very soon. Very, very soon. Peace. hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem it can be your internet service provider or you know who looking at what you do online or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info or even a hacker at the next table 
trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.